0: 847
1: is 366 and 7. Hello and welcome to a score to settle a podcast about movie and tv music i'm your host brian mcvicker each episode i focus on music composed for film and television whether through analyzing a specific score taking a deep dive into a particular composer's work or by way of interviews with guests, both those in the industry and also fellow fans. In this episode, I am continuing my multi-part journey into the music of science fiction cinema and its evolving soundscape through the decades. We're now crossing over from the 1970s to the Reagan era, otherwise known as the 1980s. When we last left the genre, A seismic shift had occurred as the unexpected arrival of Star Wars in 1977 and its symphonic score by John Williams harkened back to the sounds of a classical Hollywood era. Previous to this, film scoring during that decade had gravitated towards the avant-garde, pop and R&B trends, cold electronic tones, and concert classical works used as score. Star Wars seemed like a musical rebellion in comparison. Then, in the post-Star Wars world, studios began generating a massive amount of both science fiction and fantasy pictures. A-list budgets and talents were assigned to what had previously been considered cheaper B-list movie fodder, but it was undeniable that audiences wanted to experience escape to other worlds. The science fiction of the 1980s in general was more escapist in tone, as opposed to the heady, subversive, or socially-conscious science fiction films that we saw in the 1950s through the mid-70s. And while many mirrored the story and character arcs from Star Wars, there were also plenty of science fiction horror mashups following in the grisly footsteps of Alien, and post-apocalyptic flicks in the mold of Mad Max. So, large-scale orchestras were back in vogue after quite a hiatus thus allowing composers the luxury of writing symphonically textured works. And while, as we will hear, this did become the in-demand sound for science fiction flicks in the 80s, it wasn't a monolithic style or approach. Electronics were regularly incorporated into the scores and are often featured as solos. Uh, the palette expanded to include strange ethnic instruments and even a choral element found voice, no pun intended, in several science fiction scores, as previously choirs were mainly associated with religious epics. So even while music for the genre had returned towards more traditional orchestral soundscapes, there were still surprises and room for experimentation. Breaking down the music for science fiction cinema in the 1980s is quite a hill to climb. Not only is this due to the sheer number of films produced in this genre, but also that there is such a wealth of wonderful music composed during that decade. I mean, this is the era which gave us two additional Star Wars scores by John Williams, Alan Silvestri's Back to the Future, the introduction of James Horner uh, through two Star Trek pictures, and a multitude of memorably inventive scores from Jerry Goldsmith. This is a decade that many consider another golden age for the genre, for the movies themselves, and the strong original music applied. So, let's leave the launching pad, head into outer space, and enter the era, which, for better or worse, also gave us Yahoo, Sirius, and Madonna, beginning in the year 1980. The Empire Strikes Back, also known as Episode 5 in the Star Wars saga, was directed by Irvin Kershner with a story by George Lucas, was the first sequel to 1977's Star Wars, and it ruled the summer of 1980. The story follows the ongoing adventures of rebel heroes Luke, Han, and Princess Leia as they fight to free their galaxy from the tyranny of the evil empire. John Williams, of course, returned to compose the music, and deepened and expanded on his themes and approach initiated in the original. Arguably, its most impactful musical contribution to the genre and to pop culture overall was the newly crafted militaristic minor key theme for Archvillain Darth Vader, and by extension the Empire. While this theme was introduced first in The Empire Strikes Back, it has appeared in all subsequent Star Wars installments. Now it's as familiar to general audiences as the opening fanfare. This is the version of the theme as performed by the National Philharmonic Orchestra conducted by Charles Gerhardt, on a really great recording of highlights from the score uh, that was uh, recorded and issued uh, around the time of the movie in 1980. So again, this is music from The Empire Strikes Back composed by John Williams. John Williams' score for The Empire Strikes Back is mammoth in comparison to his work on the first film. Not only are there three new major themes, there are also new motifs for the droids, for a new characters Lando Calrissian and the bounty hunter Boba Fett, uh, plus standalone set pieces for the battle sequences on Hoth and the chase through the asteroid field. The minutes of music that Williams composed for Empire Strikes Back almost doubles the amount that he composed for Star Wars, Uh, the latter with only around 85 minutes of music, Empire Strikes Back is almost scored wall to wall, uh, even if some cues were dropped from the final version of the film, and there is enough new material heard here for at least 10 movies. John Williams Symphonic Stamp continued to set a high bar for the genre, especially for movies set in deep space, and its influence can be heard in the next science fiction score from 1980 that I'd like to present, This would be Battle Beyond the Stars, produced by Roger Corman, directed by Jimmy Murakami, with music by a very green new recruit to the industry, at the time, James Horner. The movie itself, now a cult favorite, is a fun homage to the western classic The Magnificent Seven, just set in outer space. The Magnificent Seven itself is an homage to the Seven Samurai. Uh, Horner, while born in Los Angeles in 1953, studied music first in London at the Royal College of Music, then continued his studies here in the States at USC. By the late 1970s, he had begun writing music for documentaries for the American Film Institute, or AFI, and then soon migrated over to scoring movies produced by the famous B-movie mogul Roger Corman. Horner's music for Battle Beyond the Stars showcases the melodic sweep and rich orchestrations for which he soon garnered an ardent following both within the industry and also from fans uh, and bears influences not just from the swashbuckling sw- uh, style of Star Wars but also elements from Jerry Goldsmith's music for *1979 Star Trek The Motion Picture. For instance, the iconic blaster beam sound from Star Trek The Motion Picture is utilized by Horner, and it all adds to the goofy charm of the movie. So here's the cue Cowboy and the Jackers from James Horner's score for 1980's Battle Beyond the Stars. It seems inevitable now that composer James Horner would enjoy such a long and noted career in film music as he did, up until his untimely death in 2015. While he primarily navigated a similarly uh, traditional post-romantic symphonic arena as did John Williams, their respective styles and approaches were quite different, yet equally effective. We'll hear more from Horner throughout these episodes centering on the 1980s, However, moving on to the next science fiction entry from the start of the decade, we'll hear from a veteran composer whose career predated most of his compatriots at this time. This would be Elmer Bernstein. Elmer Bernstein is a composer who I examined way back in episode 7, focusing on both his jazz-oriented scores and his westerns. His film scoring journey began in 1951, and even included two Z-grade science fiction pictures, Cat Women of the Moon and Robot Monster. Yet he didn't return to the genre until 1980. Unfortunately, Elmer Bernstein's return was associated with one of the most troubled and lambasted space epics in the post-Star Wars era, Saturn III. Saturn III was directed by Stanley Donnan and starred Kirk Douglas and Harvey Keitel, now, sit with that for just a moment. Saturn Three was directed by the same person who directed the classic Singing in the Rain. It starred Spartacus himself, showcased the intensity of Harvey Keitel as a villain, and even included a script by British novelist Martin Amos. And yet, the whole movie is kind of a dreary mess. Nonetheless, Elmer Bernstein composed a varied and moody score for full orchestra, choir, electronics, and even dips into disco in several instances. But barely half of the score is heard in the finished product. Thankfully, Intrada Records rescued it from obscurity, and we can simply enjoy the music on its own. So here is a portion of the opening cue called Space Murder. This is again from the 1980 film Saturn III, composed by Arnold Bernstein. That was a portion of the opening cue called Space Murder, from Elmer Bernstein's score for Saturn 3 from 1980. Saturn 3 began an impressive streak of other genre projects in this decade for the elder statesman Bernstein, from American Werewolf in London to the animated Heavy Metal and the Black Cauldron, and even the 3D gimmicky adventure Space Hunter, Adventures in the Forbidden Zone, some of which I will sample soon. In fact, the love theme that he composed for Saturn III, which wound up being completely dialed out in the film, found new life the very next year in Bernstein's sonorous score for the aforementioned heavy metal. And so, while we're on the topic of these unfortunate science fiction pictures, which failed to find an audience or friendly critics, this next title later was granted a second life as a popular camp classic. Not the least of which is due to its prominent placement of music by the legendary flashy rock band, Queen. Colorful space opera Flash Gordon was released in December of 1980, directed by Mike Hodges and boasts an engaging cast, both of newcomers and reliable British character actors. And of course, there is the inimitable Max von Sydow as Ming the Merciless. As expected, reviving the Flash Gordon property into the modern age from its previous life in 1930s black and white serials was motivated by the success of Star Wars. The movie aims for that same epic scope yet has its own quirky sensibilities, right down to quaint effects and schizophrenic application of music. It could be considered a cinematic descendant of 1968's Barbarella, and possibly the progenitor of 1997's The Fifth Element. The band Queen, led by Freddie Mercury, had been initially hired to provide both songs and score for the film, however roadblocks were encountered in the latter area necessitating the last-minute hiring of British composer Howard Blake. Blake, who really deserves more credit for his work than he usually receives on this film, swooped in to adapt Queen's themes and also add his own, all voiced by the National Philharmonic Orchestra in a rousing old-fashioned sweeping style. It all adds up to a really unique sonic cocktail that would be difficult to duplicate. And for an example, here is a short suite of music, From 1980's campy, colorful Flash Gordon. Cues by both Howard Blake and Queen. The cues being The Princess, Dale's Seduction, and Football Fight. and dreams. That was a suite of music from the science fiction cult classic Flash Gordon, as composed by Queen with Howard Blake. In an interview in the book Planet Wax, composer Howard Blake describes the post-production panic into which he stepped, and the short amount of time he had to write and record the orchestral score for 1980's Flash Gordon. But apparently, he really enjoyed collaborating with Queen frontman Freddie Mercury on the themes for the movie. For anyone interested, there are two soundtrack albums available. One produced by Queen with their tracks, and the other focused solely on Blake's score cues for the movie. There is one more science fiction title from the inaugural year of the 1980s that I'd like to present, and that is the time travel movie The Final Countdown, with music composed by John Scott. Time travel has, of course, remained a staple of the genre, as we've heard from the 1960s The Time Machine, to 1979's Time After Time, and we will of course encounter this again during this decade with Back to the Future in 1985. But in 1980, there was The Final Countdown, directed by Don Siegel and starring Kirk Douglas and Martin Sheen. The plot has a modern-day aircraft carrier fall into a time warp, taking it back to December 6th, 1941, the day before the attack on Pearl Harbor. For Kirk Douglas, at least his second science fiction movie of the year is a darn sight more enjoyable than Saturn 3. For the purposes of my series, we last heard from British composer John Scott with The People That Time Forgot, released the same year as Star Wars, 1977. For The Final Countdown, Scott again brought his gift for melodic and exciting orchestral music, and it's proven to be one of his most popular scores among fans. Scott's catchy theme for The Final Countdown is heard in both heroic and turbulent variations, most memorably when accompanied by cascading trumpets and horns, as can be heard in this cue called Shake Up the Zeros. So again, this is music from The Final Countdown, composed by John Scott. That was the cue, Shake Up the Zeros, composed by John Scott from his score for the 1980 time-travel war picture, The Final Countdown. An interesting story about John Scott's score for The Final Countdown is that he learned later it had been copied note for note in a Japanese drama series with no credit being given to him. Even the main theme had lyrics set against it, and that became a hit on Japanese radio. Scott had to pursue legal action, and he was eventually granted one-eighth of a share of the royalties. So, progressing further into this decade, 1981 saw the proliferation of science fiction films continuing apace, still through a mix of both low-budget and superstar-led outer space vehicles, alongside science fiction horror mashups and post-apocalyptic dystopias. It's also a year where we find possibly the most overlooked John Williams score in that blockbuster era of his career. And this would be a futuristic science fiction comedy about a pair of robots falling in love. The film, released in December 1981, is called Heartbeeps and was directed by Alan Arkush and starred the idiosyncratic comedian Andy Kaufman alongside Bernadette Peters. Now, It failed to connect with either critics or audiences and for many years received no album release for Williams' score, not even a new recording of the theme by the Boston Pops. It wasn't until it was issued in limited fashion by the record label Verez Saraban in the 2000s that fans were able to finally listen to it fully. Heartbeeps was composed smack in the middle of one of the most fertile creative periods for John Williams, following on from Superman, Dracula, and The Empire Strikes Back, and leading into Raiders of the Lost Ark and E.T. the Extraterrestrial. It's a charming and lighthearted score, combining orchestra and synthesizers in a way that at times kind of reminds me of some of those Mannheim steamroller Christmas albums. It's interesting. It's interesting as the synth element really takes precedence in a way not often heard in Williams' scores, making this more akin, perhaps, to how Jerry Goldsmith normally approached science fiction. There is an urgent, propulsive theme representing a glitchy law enforcement robot Called Crime Buster. And this is a theme that can become quite the earworm, as with many Williams tunes, so consider yourself forewarned. Here is the cue called Crime Buster from 1981's Heartbeeps, composed by John Williams. <laughs> Closing with a declamatory flourish, that was music from John Williams' score for Heartbeeps from 1981, the cue called Crime Buster. An assessment made by someone else, but which stuck with me, was that this cue was the lighter side version of the Imperial March from The Empire Strikes Back. With the next movie from 1981 that I'd like to spotlight, we're venturing back into outer space, or more specifically, out to the edge of our solar system. This is a movie titled Outland, starring the legendary Sean Connery, written and directed by Peter Hyams, and featuring a threatening and oppressive orchestral score from Jerry Goldsmith. Interestingly enough, for a picture set on a moon of Jupiter, director Hyams essentially modeled the plot mechanics on that of the famed western High Noon from 1952. Connery plays an unpopular federal marshal, William O'Neill, on this mining outpost, who is awaiting the arrival of assassins sent to murder him. It is most often noted that the art direction, production design, and cinematography of Outland hew closely to Ridley Scott's Alien from 1979, and funny enough, both contain music by Jerry Goldsmith. Now, Goldsmith was never one to rest on his laurels or recap what he'd previously written, but there are shades of his work on Alien heard in Outland, such as in the very high dissonant strings, angry brass outbursts, and very few instances of any major key relief from the gloom. Here is a portion of the cue called the airlock, which presents mounting tension around the no-nonsense, short-descending main motif for the score. And again, this is music from 1981's Outland, composed by Jerry Goldsmith. That was music composed by Jerry Goldsmith for the outer space western Outland. Goldsmith can safely be considered a perennial superstar composer for the science fiction genre as he was regularly sought out year after year by studios and directors. Science fiction allowed Goldsmith a canvas for his immense talent in bringing modernism, invention, and intensity to every one of these projects. Of course, two years prior, he had topped 1979 with the one-two punch of Star Trek The Motion Picture and the aforementioned Alien. And with the large-scale orchestral sound still in demand in 1981, with Outland, Goldsmith could continue experimenting within these thickly textured and orchestrated scores. However, by 1983, electronic tonalities would begin to dominate Goldsmith's music for the remainder of the decade, as we'll hear in later episodes. The next two science fiction films will require a return ticket back to Earth, but not a version of Earth that you would necessarily want to visit, as they're both set in a post-apocalyptic dystopian future. The Road Warrior and Escape from New York. The Road Warrior, aka Mad Max 2, was directed again by George Miller and starred Mel Gibson as Max, plus also has Brian May returning as composer, it was released in Australia in December 1981 and elsewhere the following year, which is when the movie was renamed to The Road Warrior, mainly because Warner Brothers Studio realized that most U.S. audiences never saw the original Mad Max. Not only was The Road Warrior a bigger success than its predecessor, but really crystallized a new facet to the post-apocalyptic sub-genre not unlike the many cinematic imitations of Star Wars that we see after 77, after the Road Warrior's debut it spawned its own low-budget imitators of grungy, lawless, punk, post-apocalyptic action flicks. As I mentioned in the last episode, this is not the same Brian May from the band Queen, but a well-known Australian composer who studied piano, violin, and also was a noted arranger for big band music. For this sequel to the 1979 original, May was granted a larger budget for music, embellishing the sparse sound of Mad Max with richer strings, brass, and woodwinds. Thematically, there is new melodic material here for Max, the gyro captain, a motif for the feral kid, and also for the wicked Lord Humongous, alongside some fierce brass and percussion action cues. Surprisingly, The Road Warrior is bookended by a melancholy string elegy heard under the opening montage sequence and then the scenes of denouement, denoting kind of a lament for civilization and humanity. Here is that melancholy string elegy theme composed by Brian May for 1981's Mad Max 2 The Road Warrior. That was music from Brian May's score for The Road Warrior, released in Australia in 1981, but not seen in the U.S. until the following year. 1981 was a busy year for May, as he also provided music for uh, the action-adventures Road Games and Race for the Yankee Zephyr, plus Gallipoli, his second Mel Gibson film for that year. Brian May wasn't asked back for the third film in the Mad Max series, which is a topic I'll circle back to later on. The second film from 1981, set in a post-apocalyptic, dystopian future that I'd like to musically spotlight is Escape from New York, directed, co-written, and co-scored by the iconoclastic John Carpenter and starring Kurt Russell. The movie is set in and around the island of Manhattan of the future when it has been converted into a maximum security prison. Kurt Russell plays federal prisoner Snake Plissken, whose own freedom is dependent on whether he can rescue the President of the United States from Manhattan. As a creator, John Carpenter is most often associated with the horror genre, seeing as how he kickstarted the slasher movie with the original Halloween in 1978, followed later by The Fog and Christine. However, his inaugural cinematic intro was through science fiction, via 1974's Dark Star, and he continued to return to the genre, usually laced with horror. For example, The Thing from 1982, They Live from 88, and Ghosts of Mars from 2011 all can be considered science fiction horror mashups, maybe somewhat similar to how much of director David Cronenberg's cinematic output threads horror into science fiction. What adds to Carpenter's filmography is that he often composes the music as well. His heavy utilization of synths and electronic instruments from the beginning set its own template uh, that became mimicked, not unlike the template set for science fiction via the symphonic strains of Williams' Star Wars. Carpenter collaborated often with Alan Howarth, a sound designer who programmed and synchronized the sense and drum machines on the Escape from New York score. Here is the main title from Escape from New York, composed by John Carpenter. This sparse keyboard and propulsive sequencer sound of Carpenter's score for 1981's Escape from New York, a sound now referenced in current shows such as Stranger Things, is an early indicator of how quickly music for science fiction of the 1980s really tended towards eclecticism. Yes, the traditional classical orchestra had made a triumphant return, but hiring an orchestra is expensive and it's not affordable to all productions. Hence, synthesizers were often considered more cost effective. Plus, if we listen way back to the 1950s, electronic tonalities have often accompanied future set storytelling. So this example is really just continuing that sonic lineage. What will emerge during the 1980s science fiction cinema is a conversation between the acoustic and the electronic. On occasion, a duet, while at other times, a monologue by one or the other. The final title from 1981 that I want to feature might seem a strange inclusion, as it's an anthology story structure. It has sequences of both hard science fiction and high fantasy, and it's animated. This is the Canadian-American production Heavy Metal, adapted from the illustrated magazine of the same name, and produced by Ivan Reitman. Among the voice cast, we will hear comedians John Candy, Harold Ramis, and Eugene Levy. True to the film title, there is a plethora of rock tracks by mega artists and bands of the day, such as Sammy Hagar, Journey, and Cheap Trick. However, surprisingly, It also sports an incredibly sweeping and thematic orchestral score composed by veteran Elmer Bernstein. So I had mentioned earlier how the love theme that he composed for 1980s Saturn III went unused in that film. Well, this is where that theme found a new home in this graphic, bloody, very adult animated science fiction epic. Heavy Metal is a multi-thematic work with material unique to each vignette While referenced throughout is its primary main theme, a mysterious wailing melody for the strange magic green ball which appears in each sequence, The score allowed Elmer Bernstein also to begin his long association with the instrument called the Andes Martineau, invented in 1928 by a French cellist and radio telegrapher, which showcases a sound not unlike the theremin, yet more nuanced. Bernstein also utilized the 96-member Royal Philharmonic Orchestra, alongside the London Voices, to provide an unexpectedly- rich grandeur and depth to the the animation. This grandeur is most evident in the final vignette entitled Tarna. Here is the cue flight to temple from this vignette, all from Elmer Bernstein's score from 1981's animated Heavy Metal. that was the cue Flight to Temple from Elmer Bernstein's score for Heavy Metal, the last science fiction title from 1981 that I wanted to highlight. As an aside, at this stage of Bernstein's long career, he was several years into his comedy phase, often being hired by Reitman to provide straight-faced music to the comedy films he produced or directed, such as Animal House, Meatballs, Stripes, and Ghostbusters. Bernstein was also everyone's top choice for comedies following 1980s disaster movie parody, Airplane. Science fiction and fantasy projects such as Heavy Metal proved to be a welcome change of pace for the stalwart composer who brought his strident, tuneful swagger into outer space, and he described the genre as a composer's holiday. So, to keep this episode's runtime at a manageable length, I'm going to close out with some selections from 1982, a year that many fans consider to be a cinematic high point for the genre. In fact, if I was to expand the scope uh, of the episode by focusing uh, beyond science fiction, there would be no shortage of musical riches to include from just this single year. For example, Conan the Barbarian, The Beastmaster, The Dark Crystal, Sword and the Sorcerer, the Last Unicorn, and Secret of Nim, all have wonderful musical accompaniment. However, even restricting myself to science fiction, there are five movies that I'd like to spotlight. To begin, we're returning to the depth of space in the 23rd century, and to the big screen adventures of the OG crew of Star Trek, the original series crew, in Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan, directed by Nicholas Meyer, with music composed by James Horner. With Star Trek II, Paramount Studios decided to scale back the production due to cost overruns on the first Star Trek feature film, and with this came a reduced music budget. Horner's symphonic sweep on a shoestring budget that graced Battle Beyond the Stars two years earlier had really impressed writer-director Nick Meyer, and he hired the still-burgeoning composer to think nautical to treat outer space as an endless ocean and the starships like Spanish galleons of the Old World. The result is an effusive symphonic confection, full of melody and energy. It's interesting, though, that Meyer requested such an old-fashioned musical approach, something more akin to a 1940s pirate movie, but this kind of falls in line with his choice of Golden Age composer Miklos Rocha to score his previous film. 1979's Time After Time. One wonders, though, if there had been no Star Wars to resurrect the classical Hollywood symphonic style, would Nicholas Meyer have been the lone creative force asking for this sound from his composers? Here is the special 45 RPM edit of the main and title cues. Again, this is music from Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, composed by James Horner from 1982. That was a special edit of the main and entitled cues, released on 45 RPM records, music from 1982 Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. This was the score that really launched Horner's career and garnered him that ardent fanbase among a certain generation of soundtrack fans, myself included. He continued with a host of other genre projects during the 1980s, including the follow-up Star Trek III, Cocoon, and Aliens. Then he transitioned into more action-adventure and animated films in the 90s, or the late 80s, early 90s, all before settling into more dramatic fare, both epic and intimate, in the last few decades of his life, such as Legends of the Fall and Titanic. Next, from 1982, from the deep recesses of space, a parasitic organism crash lands on Earth and proceeds to decimate a group of research scientists in Antarctica. This would be the graphically horrific nihilistic The Thing, a remake of 1951's The Thing from Another World. And both are based on the 1938 novella called Who Goes There by John W. Campbell. For this slice of science fiction cinema, we revisit the team from Escape from New York, with John Carpenter as director and Kurt Russell as reluctant hero. Carpenter was not the first choice for this project. The studio apparently initially sought Toby Hooper, who was hot off 1974's uh, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre but thanks mostly to Halloween in 1978, Carpenter was asked next, and he so revered the 1951 Howard Hawks directed original that he actually resisted at first. The Thing was neither a critical or commercial hit, but achieved cult status later on due to home video rentals and uh, a growing appreciation for its makeup effects and very bleak, isolated setting. In terms of music, This is one of several movies for which John Carpenter himself didn't compose any thematic material. The Thing was his first major studio picture, and he was so consumed with the production and effects that he looked elsewhere for musical talent, such as Jerry Goldsmith. But at that time, Goldsmith was in the midst of an exceedingly busy year, and so Carpenter then looked to famed Italian composer Ennio Morricone. While Morricone's score is appropriately eerie and threatening, it is also primarily orchestral, with only some synth pulses uh, that feel akin to the usual John Carpenter sonic vibe. Here is the cue called Shape with keening strings amid solos for a wandering clarinet and piano. So again, this is music from 1982's The Thing, composed by Ennio Morricone. That was the cue called Shape, composed by Ennio Morricone for The Thing from 1982. Interestingly enough, at the outset of post-production, Morricone provided director John Carpenter with some synth demos of his cues for him to approve prior to the actual orchestral recording sessions which were planned in Los Angeles. Carpenter actually used some of these uh, synth demos in the film in place of the orchestrated versions, and then he ended up dropping some other cues completely. As can happen in Hollywood, one of those dropped cues, called bestiality, can actually be heard in Quentin Tarantino's film, The Hateful Eight. When speaking earlier of John Carpenter's electronic score for Escape from New York, I had made the observation that, far from being dominated by acoustic, orchestral, Star Wars style uh, accompaniment, what emerged during the 1980s science fiction cinema is instead a conversation between the acoustic and the electronic, sometimes as a duet, while at other times a monologue by one or the other. In this case, uh, we have the science fiction action cult favorite, Tron, and it features a seamless synthesis of the acoustic and electronic voices with the effect of almost not knowing the end of one and the beginning of the other. Tron, which was released by Disney in July of 1982, was directed by Steven Lisberger, star Jeff Bridges and Bruce Boxleitner, and was a pioneering project in the arena of CGI effects. The music was composed by Wendy Carlos, a pioneer herself in the world of electronic music, starting in 1968, After studying composition at both Brown University and Columbia University, Carlos helped develop the reliably popular Moog synthesizer and also contributed electronic adaptations of classical standards to Stanley Kubrick's A Clockwork Orange and The Shining. The story of Tron has game developer Kevin Flynn transported and trapped inside the programming of a mainframe computer. The initial idea for the music was to utilize the orchestra only for the real-world segments and electronics for inside the digital realm. This is a little similar to Jerry Goldsmith's approach for Logan's run in 1976 and its competing tonalities inside and outside the sealed dome city. However, composer Wendy Carlos explained in the soundtrack album Liner Notes that what functioned better dramatically was voicing the real world through string orchestra, flutes, and celeste, while the computer world was scored with full orchestra, synthesizers, choir, and a pipe organ. Recorded separately, the synths were all performed manually, not sequenced, and mixed later into the orchestral tracks. This might be considered the oral equivalent of how the early digital effects were sort of mixed into the live-action elements of the film itself. So, there are two main thematic pillars of the score. There is a strident pseudo march and a more soaring romantic line, all of which can be heard in the final cue from the film, the ending titles. So, again, this is music from 1982's Tron, composed by Wendy Carlos. was music composed by Wendy Carlos from the 1982 science fiction action flick Tron, a pioneering sci-fi film in all aspects, including the score. Incidentally, Wendy Carlos was actually born Walter Carlos in 1939. She had been living as a woman since the late 1960s until completing gender reassignment surgery during the early 70s. All of this, of course, publicly raising the awareness and acknowledgement of transgender persons. Lastly, the 1980s rock powerhouse band Journey contributed two tunes to Tron, the song's only solution and 1990s theme, which was certainly a shrewd decision to connect this film to youth culture even beyond the focus on video games. Advancing to the penultimate science fiction title from 1982, I think we find some intriguing parallels between it and Tron. Both films employ the talents of designer and concept artist Sid Mead. In terms of overarching themes, in Tron, we're transported to a computerized realm populated with digital simulations of actual people who program that realm. And then in this next film, the antagonists are simulated human beings, hiding among the real us attempting to emulate real human attributes. This would be the cinematic science fiction milestone, Blade Runner, directed by Ridley Scott and starring Harrison Ford and Rutger Hauer. The story of Blade Runner is based on the 1968 novel, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep?, written by Philip K. Dick and adapted by Hampton Fancher and David Peoples. In the dystopian future of Blade Runner, Ford plays a licensed Blade Runner named Rick Deckard who hunts down errant replicants which are synthetically crafted humans who escaped servitude. It was mostly ignored by audiences and critics, and yet then still gained a cult following thanks to home video, not unlike both The Thing and Tron. Musically, as we continue to chart the acoustic versus electronic conversation of the decade's science fiction scores, Blade Runner completely favors the latter soundscape with one of the most revered synthesizer scores as composed by Vangelis. Greek musician Vangelis had previously produced popular studio albums of synth work and was awarded an Oscar for his Chariots of Fire score from 1981. His music for Blade Runner bathes the film in swelling synth chords, lonely melodic ruminations, and threatening percussion and bells. It sets the contemplative mood just as much as the perpetual rain dousing every scene. As an example, here's the cue called Los Angeles, November 2019, as performed by Edgar Rottermec from a re-recording of this score that was done in 2012. It was a very faithful re-recording. So anyway, this is music for 1982's Blade Runner, composed by Vangelis, and a performance by Edgar Rottermec. That was the cue called Los Angeles, November 2019, from the score for 1982's Blade Runner, as composed by Vangelis, and accurately wonderfully performed by Edgar Rodermick in 2012. According to the film's end credits, a soundtrack album was planned for release, yet never materialized. Some of the original tracks could be found on bootlegs and various Vangelis compilations, But it wasn't until the 90s and again the 2000s that there were official album releases of the original cues from the movie itself. With a synth score that at times attempts to recreate acoustic sounds, I think there's a fascinating reflection of the movie's main character arcs happening in the music. Replicant is a synthetic representation of a flesh and blood human being, as the music is an electronic interpretation of acoustic forms of music such as jazz or blues. It's as if the synthesizers have a memory of what a real bass, drums, and trumpet sound like, but can only reproduce the sound within digital vocabulary. Similar to where this episode began, my final example of science fiction cinema in 1982 needs little introduction to most listeners out there. I'm closing out by bringing us full circle back to composer John Williams with his score for E.T. The Extraterrestrial, directed by Steven Spielberg, written by Melissa Matheson, and starring Henry Thomas. It was the most moving and uplifting movie of that year accepted across all demographics and the highest grossing film until Jurassic Park thundered along in 1993. The story follows the little abandoned extraterrestrial called E.T. as it befriends a young boy named Elliot who also feels neglected and unseen. As with all Spielberg movies, music is key to understanding its point of view and connecting emotionally to it as it unfolds. Williams' Oscar winning score so enriched E.T. That Spielberg even recut the final reel to the cues as Williams recorded them instead of cutting the music cues to fit the scene lengths. E.T. features a wealth of thematic and motivic material, mostly centering around the character of E.T., whether a personal theme for the alien, one for its flying abilities, another representing E.T. and Elliot's connection and also a subtle, sinister theme for the scientists that are pursuing E.T. Williams' music asks us to trust and believe in E.T., and it provides the tether that lets us feel wonder, joy, and sadness right alongside the character of Elliot on his journey. From the recent two-CD album release from La La Land Records, I'd like to play the alternate version of the end credits for E.T. The Extraterrestrial, which includes several of the major themes in a suite format. So this is music composed by John Williams for E.T. The Extraterrestrial from 1982. That was the alternate end credits cue from John Williams' score for 1982's E.T. The Extraterrestrial, a career and pop culture milestone. The success of E.T. spawned a trend towards more benevolent alien visitors, although you could argue that this trend was somewhat anticipated in 1977's Close Encounters of the Third Kind. In subsequent science fiction movies such as Starman and Cocoon, the visiting aliens were friendlier than seen in previous decades, Uh, which could be tied to a general sense of optimism in the 1980s here in the United States. This phase didn't really last long, unfortunately. So at the end of the last episode, I posed a question to ponder, which was whether we could identify the benefits of the return of traditional symphonic scoring styles of the golden age of Hollywood and to science fiction cinema specifically. Does the symphonic score help tell the story better or better illuminate individual character arcs. I think in some ways this scoring style does actually draw an audience further into the story and binds them more emotionally to the characters, even if the audience is unaware as to why. Orchestral music also has more of a timeless quality than something more trendy. I can't imagine any other score for E.T. than what John Williams composed and still have that film's ending move people to tears as it does so effectively now. It essays unspoken emotions in that film. And yet, on the flip side, nothing but Vangelis's all-electronic soundscape for Blade Runner would have enveloped us so completely. The synths represented a future world, but also the synthetic humans need to feel and express something real and lasting. So the dialogue between acoustic and electronic tonalities will continue in the next episode. I want to thank everyone for listening today to this episode of the podcast. I surely hope that while extensive, this continues to be an enjoyable and enlightening exploration for everyone into the music of science fiction cinema through the decades. Next episode, I will continue advancing into the 1980s, most likely 1983 through 1985 or 6, depending on how many titles I plan to spotlight. Uh, as always, listening for what is unique and memorable for the genre and where its sonic lineage persists. Music heard in this episode was from the following films. The Empire Strikes Back, Heartbeeps and E.T. the Extraterrestrial, all composed by John Williams. Outland, composed by Jerry Goldsmith. Flash Gordon, music by Queen, with Howard Blake. The Final Countdown, by John Scott. Battle Beyond the Stars and Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, both composed by James Horner. Mad Max II, The Road Warrior, composed by Brian May. Saturn 3 and Heavy Metal, both composed by Elmer Bernstein, The Thing, composed by Ennio Morricone, Blade Runner, music by Van Vangelis, Escape from New York, composed by John Carpenter, and Tron, composed by Wendy Carlos. If you'd like to send any comments or questions, you can email the show at Podcast at gmail.com, Find the blog at scoretosettle.blogspot.com, on Facebook at facebook.com slash to scoretosettle, and on Twitter at scoretosettlepod. That's score, the number two, settle pod. If you listen to the show by way of iTunes, feel free to leave a rating and review. That's always appreciated, and you can get a shout-out on the next episode. And, of course, the show is also available to listen to on Spotify. Thanks again for listening.